Hey guys, today's episode is part two in a series about the OK Corral shootout. The first part was actually about the shootout itself, so if you know plenty about that, you can totally skip it. This one is all about the trial, which means that if you're not somebody who's into, like, courts or law and order or any of that, it might not be as interesting, but personally, I found it quite fun to research, so I hope you enjoy this episode of High Crimes in History. Today's episode is based off the book Murder in Tombstone, The Forgotten Trial of Wyatt Earp by Stephen Lubet. I find that how people define justice to be really telling about the kind of person that they are. And I don't mean in like a Webster's Dictionary, here's the definition. I mean in how they perceive and judge situations, especially current events. Like, whenever you see some video on YouTube of a guy getting his lights knocked out in a street fight, there's always that one comment underneath. Something like, oh, I would have done the same. Or yeah, he got what he deserved. That never made sense to me. What did he deserve? A trip to the hospital, thousands of dollars of medical bills, possible trauma, physical disability, all because he calls another guy a jackass? It's like there's a certain impulse among some people in society that any retribution, even if it's imbalanced, is deserved. If you cross the line in the sand. That action or word or movement that escalates a situation to physical violence. But where's the line? That's the rub, because I think most people, hopefully you, would agree that the line is determined by the social contract. It's determined by the laws that we all agree to follow. If we don't like where the line is, we try to change it through voting or legislation or the like. But then there's this subset of people where the line isn't defined by society. It's defined by the person, the individual, themselves. And that means that all conflicts become personal. Dishing out justice becomes personal. And this isn't a new concept. In fact, I'm working on an episode explaining why violence is more prevalent the farther you go back in history, and this concept of personal vengeance is the key reason why. Here's the thing. If you think each individual person determines their own line in the sand, not society, that's fine. Except pretty much everyone that you interact with can't see where you drew the line. The individual knows when something is unjust against them, they know what punishments are a slight or an insult and what it's worth, but unless they announce it to the world, the rest of society doesn't. Like, for example, we don't play 20 questions every time we meet someone. We don't ask, so, if I spill my drink on you, will you that start a fight? What if I spill it accidentally? Is that different than if I do it on purpose? No, we don't do that because it's insane. It's not how society functions. So we, as a collective, draw up the line in the sand using our laws. That's why laws were written in the first place. The Code of Hammurabi, written almost 4,000 years ago, the very first real codified law, was literally a way of telling everyone in ancient Mesopotamia, here's the laws for all people, no matter what city or province you go to. No more worrying about if you break the law just because you are in a different city. And if you don't like the law, tough luck, you can work to change it, but as long as it's in place, it's the law. Law is a fundamental building block of society. In the state of nature, that lawless frontier where no society exists, everyone draws their own lines, 
that's pretty rare to find in history. It's fascinating, then, whenever I read accounts that dismiss the killings of the Clantons and McLaurys in the shootout of the OK Corral and state that it wasn't a wrongful death. Hopefully you've listened to our previous episode, but as a recap, a long-standing feud between the Earp brothers and the McLaurie and Clanton brothers came to a head on October 26, 1881. In Tombstone, Arizona, the Earp brothers, assisted by Doc Holliday, shot and killed Tom and Frank McLaurie, as well as Billy Clanton. What seems clear is that one of the Earp party shot first, and that they shot at least one unarmed man, Tom. Also clear is that they aggressively sought to encounter the McLaurys and Clanton brothers after they left the OK Corral to decide whether to head out of town. Virgil Earp's personal line in the sand was that they not leave the corral, but the Clanton party didn't know that. Less clear is exactly how premeditated the killings were. Some witnesses testified that the Earps had discussed killing the brothers as they made their way to the alley where the shootout occurred. It's also unclear what Johnny Behan's role was. As county sheriff, he had stated he was in the process of disarming the cowboys, but he also had his own rivalry with the Earps and a holiday. And finally, right before the shooting commenced, Frank McClory made an errant move. At least, that's what the Earps said. They supposed it was for his gun, but no witness thus far has testified anything of the sort or what Frank was doing. Some armchair historians and Western aficionados like to chalk up the whole shootout to a bunch of lawful sheriffs standing their ground and shooting down a bunch of ruffians before they could stir up more trouble. In other words, they argue the Earp should be seen as heroes. Those people are wrong. Half the residents of Tombstone regarded them as killers. In fact, as we attested to last episode, the end of the shootout of the OK Corral doesn't end with the Earp brothers and Doc Holliday riding into the sunset. The shootout is only the beginning. Because on October 30th, 1881, less than a week after the shooting, the Earps and Holliday were arrested for the murder of Tom McClory, Frank McClory, and Billy Clanton. As the evidence will show, they had crossed society's line in the sand. Why they got away with it? is what makes their trial so interesting. I'm Trevor Rhodes, and this is High Crimes in History. So first things first, let's dispel any rumor that the Wild West was a lawless frontier. We've talked in previous episodes how, in the absence of an official court or law enforcement, that residents in the West would construct a system of justice that looked very similar to an English judicial court of law. You can listen to our previous episode, Death is Signed a Contract, both Part 1 and Part 2, to see that in action, as well as what happens when it goes south. But truly, the law reigned in the West. Boomtowns quickly set up their own law enforcement and trial courts. Vigilante groups and militias formed to make sure that no corruption occurred on the part of the new judicial system. And these institutions were created remarkably fast. Like a case in point, multiple wagon trains on the Overland Trail, when faced with an accusation of murder, didn't just take the perpetrator out back and shoot him, they set up a trial on the trail with justices, witnesses, a prosecution, and defendant, 
All of this, despite almost none of these pioneers having any legal training, many of them never having even been to a court before. There was no need to do any of this. They existed outside of the legal jurisdiction of the United States, but pioneers did it anyways, for the reason we described in our introduction. Defining society's line in the sand mattered. One of those is that you don't kill a man unless you have good reason. But what constitutes good reason? On the frontier, indeed in a lot of early American states, the individual was entitled to the castle doctrine. In legal speak, this was the doctrine that if any person is on their property and has to defend themselves from an intruder, they have no duty to retreat. More commonly, this is the belief that if someone steps on your property, then lethal retaliation is justified if one fears for their life. So, if you see someone snooping about your house in the dead of night, all dressed in black, seems nefarious, this doctrine would say you could blow them away. Now, exactly how the castle doctrine is applied, if it's even applicable, some states don't have one, differs depending on where you're at. It's also important to note that it's often not written directly into the judicial code, especially not in the 19th century, so it's open to interpretation. People just assume it's there. And in the American West, a lot of people interpreted it broadly. There are many instances in Old West court cases where a person, when accused of murder, uses the phrase, I feared for my life. In many cases, this was all it took to get them acquitted. It could be they were attacked in their house, or in the bar, or out in the desert. Sometimes it even convinced juries that a person could shoot even before there was a distinct threat. For example, in 1885, Doc Holliday walked into a bar and killed an unarmed man before the man even knew Holliday was there. His reason? He owed the man a debt, the man had verbally threatened him before, and so he shot him. Holliday was acquitted. Now, by and large, this last bit wasn't common. Most of the public turned their noses at killing an unarmed man or a man who hadn't drawn a gun. So, in the case of the OK Corral shootout, there was ample evidence that the Earps in Holiday had fired on men who had not made the first move, and one of them was unarmed. Moreover, the Earps had aggressively engaged the men. It would be one thing if they had accidentally ran into them in the alleyway and things escalated from there but the Earps intentionally went out of their way to engage the McClory's and Clantons, hunting them down instead of allowing them to leave or be hand to handle it, thereby de-escalating the situation. It seemed pretty clear by the early evidence that the Earps weren't able to claim the Castle Doctrine. Thus, they were going to trial for murder. Now, Before a court trial, every potential trial first has to have a preliminary hearing. In the Arizona Territory, the hearing's only job, quote, was to determine whether a public offense had been committed, and if so, whether there was sufficient cause to believe the defendant guilty thereof, end quote. Sufficient cause is a pretty dang low standard. It's basically, is there a possibility that this crime occurred? It takes very little evidence to move to a trial. For example, Johnny Behan's testimony that Doc Holliday had shot first could be enough to provide sufficient cause. Most good criminal prosecutors don't move forward with a criminal trial unless they believe that they can find the accused guilty, which requires proof beyond a reasonable doubt, 90% certainty that a crime was committed. But a preliminary hearing doesn't require that. 
Also, most defense lawyers don't bother pushing a case at a preliminary hearing, because with the standard of proof much higher in a full trial, they're more likely to win if they hold the particular arguments of their case until then. Otherwise, they risk uh, letting the cat out of the bag, so to speak. Almost every defense lawyer I've heard speak offers the same advice. Do you have a good argument? Save it for summation at the end of the trial when nobody can pick it apart. All of Tombstone anticipated the preliminary hearing would be over quick. The newspaper Tombstone Epitaph reported, quote, the matter would probably occupy the court for several days, end quote. That didn't happen. Lubit notes, quote, Instead, the proceeding turned into the equivalent of a full-scale trial, with 30 witnesses testifying over nearly a month, making it the longest preliminary examination in Arizona history. The prosecution and defense both called their most important witnesses, keeping little, if anything, in reverse. Both sides evidently realized that the Spicer hearing could resolve the entire case one way or the other. As befit a bunch of Arizona gamblers, everyone decided to go for broke. End quote. Why would the defense risk blowing the trial at a preliminary hearing when the burden of evidence is much lower and poses a risk to the defense? Why would the prosecution call so many witnesses, thereby unveiling their hand in any subsequent trial? Well, this particular judge, Wells Spicer, was known to dismiss a lot of criminal cases at the preliminary hearing. The prosecution didn't want to risk losing a case before it even made it to trial because they withheld evidence. The defense was worried about Judge Spicer, who was a Republican, dismissing the charges against the Earps. However, if the trial moved past the preliminary hearing, it would take place with a Cochise County jury, which would be favorable to the Cowboys. Thus, for the defense, the largest hurdle was the preliminary hearing. For the prosecution, the fear was of losing the case before it made it to trial. And, to add to this, both sides had to be worried about their witnesses. Western trials could drag on for years, by which point many of these witnesses, vagabonds, wanderers, migrants, and the like, would have moved on. If a witness wasn't at the trial, their testimony was dismissed. Unless, under Arizona statute, they testified at the preliminary hearing. Then, their testimony would enter the record and could be used at trial. So, in other words, both sides needed to present their full argument at the preliminary hearing. It was quite literally a full trial, except their jury wasn't of their peers. It was of one man, Judge Wells Spicer. Judge Spicer was an impartial jurist with an interesting background as a defense lawyer. He defended John D. Lee in the Mountain Meadows Massacre case, one of the worst mass killings in U.S. history, one that we've actually considered doing on this podcast. In 1857, a wagon train of pioneers was ambushed by a group of Mormons, who killed over a hundred men, women, and children. Brigham Young, their leader, had ordered the killings because of disputes with the federal government over possible independence. He had wanted to show that the LDS Church was not to be trifled with. Their murders weren't prosecuted until 1874, by which point most of the killers were protected or abetted in various ways by the LDS Church. Only one man was brought to trial for murder, John D. Lee, the reputed leader of the massacre. 
Spicer failed in that defense due to backroom dealings with the church made with the federal government to spare Brigham Young from being accused of the massacre. Spicer was ran out of Utah by both Gentiles and Mormons, and he settled in Arizona as a judge. His past dealings in court meant he wasn't one to jump straight into a trial based on the prosecution's case. He'd be much more measured in the hearing than many other judges willing to skip straight to trial. As for the lawyers, the defense counsel was made up of Tom Fitch, a former congressman from Nevada and legal counsel for, of all people, Brigham Young. As such, he was well acquainted with Judge Spicer and knew how to try a case before him. In fact, his memoirs often discuss, quote, the idiosyncrasies of individual judges and the important use that counsel can make of that sort of knowledge, end quote. That'd be important, because with a jury of one, Fitch's ability to perceive and influence the judge could make the difference of a case going to court or being tossed out. He was joined by T.J. Drum, who represented Doc Holliday, but the reality was that Fitch was the primary defense attorney. The prosecution was Littleton Price, Cochise County's district attorney, and Ben Goodrich, a Confederate veteran and Ike Clanton's personal lawyer. They both balanced each other out in terms of caution and wit, but on the third day of the trial, a third attorney arrived to represent the prosecution's case, Will McLory, brother of Frank and Tom. He came by train all the way from Fort Worth, Texas, to convict the killers who slew his brothers. His counsel would move the prosecution in an entirely different direction. The hearing began on October 31st, 1881, quote, virtually a murder trial in all but name, end quote. The first witness was the coroner, who described the gunshot wounds on Tom, Frank, and Bill, including the buckshot wounds on Tom's right side. That showed, importantly, that he had been shot by Doc Holliday with his shotgun, since that was the only man in the firefight with a shotgun. Next was witness Billy Allen, who described how he was the one who had told Frank McClory that Wyatt Earp had hit his brother. Billy testified that Frank's words were to him, quote, I will get the boys out of town, end quote. Later, Billy saw the fight and described it, quote, when the Earp party got down to the Clantons, the Earp party said, You sons of bitches, you have been looking for a fight. The same instant, Virgil said, Throw up your hands. Tom McClory threw his coat open and said, I ain't got no arms. He caught hold of the lapels of his coat and threw them open. William Clanton said, I don't want to fight, and held up his hands out in front of him. Just as William Clanton said, I ain't got no arms, the firing commenced by the Earp party. End quote. Billy couldn't say who was on Earp's side who shot first, but he did think that it might have been from Holiday because of where the smoke emitted from. He also thought that the second shot was from a shotgun. He said, quote, that he did not notice what Frank McClory did just before the shooting started, end quote. Defense counsel Fitch established that Allen had also heard the Earp's conversation outside the butcher shop, but couldn't remember whether he heard Morgan tell Doc, quote, to let them have it, end quote. He also said that he didn't see Doc Holliday fire his nickel-plated pistol, but he did see him raise his hand. That'd be important in future testimony. The next morning, Johnny Behan took the witness stand as the most important witness, at least at that moment, for the prosecution. 
If he could give good testimony, then his words alone would move the hearing to a full trial as sufficient evidence. Behan described how he tried to disarm the McLaurys and Clantons, and how the Earp party brushed right past them. He repeated his words for the court, quote, I was down there for the purpose of arresting and disarming the Clantons and McLaurys. I'm the sheriff of this county, and I am not going to allow any trouble if I can help it. End quote. However, when it got to the actual gunfight, he repeated the same dialogue between the two parties. Then, he saw the nickel-plated pistol, quote, His impression at the time was that Holiday had the nickel-plated pistol, end quote. He also believed it was aimed at Bill Clanton, and it fired the first shot. Surprisingly, he didn't go into any detail on the history of the feud between the Earps and Cowboys, which would have been great evidence for motive of a premeditated murder. He also seemed to have an obsession with the nickel-plated pistol, mentioning it seven times in his testimony, but otherwise he had provided the testimony the prosecution needed to move to trial. And then he was cross-examined. Fitch immediately brought up how Wyatt and Johnny both vied for sheriff when he was chief rival. Behan denied that Wyatt didn't want the sheriff's job. Fitch then asked him, What is a cowboy? Behan tried to play cute and said that a cowboy, quote, is men who deal in cattle, stockmen. Fitch continued, Do you regard the Clantons and McLaurys as cowboys? See, everyone in Tombstone knew Behan was lying. Everyone used the term cowboy as a synonym for rustlers. Fitch was pointing out that Behan wasn't trying to tell the truth. He was trying to paint himself in the best light, which meant fudging even the tiniest and most inconsequential of facts. Then, Behan jumped on him. He asked about the nickel-plated pistol. Who had it? When did he see it in the conversation? Who was it pointing at? And then, quote, Did you see the shotgun in the hands of the Earp party? And if so, which one of them? Behan replied, The last time I saw the shotgun, it was in the hands of Doc Holliday. Did you see the shotgun employed in that difficulty? I did not. Holiday, having a shotgun just preceding the difficulty, and on the way to the difficulty, and your attention being especially directed to the art party, how does it happen that you do not know what became of the shotgun? I do not. It might have been used, and I not know it. Do you insist that the first shot was fired from the nickel-plated pistol? Yes. Is it not a fact, then, that the first shot fired by Holiday was from a shotgun? that he then threw the shotgun down and drew the nickel-plated pistol from his person and then discharged the nickel-plated pistol? End quote. Behan had cornered himself. He hinged his entire testimony on seeing the nickel-plated pistol fire first. However, he had been the only witness to even mention it in the initial breakout of the gunfight. Everyone knew that Doc Holliday had a nickel-plated pistol, so Behan's testimony amounted to Holiday firing the first shot. But Fitch had just caught him in a conundrum. How could Holiday have carried a shotgun, put it aside to pull out his nickel-plated pistol, fire the first shot, put it back in its holster, then pick up the shotgun again to shoot Tom McClory, all in the space of a mere second? That sort of feat would be near impossible to make, but more importantly, it'd be making no sense. Why would you pull out a pistol when you have a perfectly fine shotgun in your other hand? What is this, Hollywood? And why would Holiday use the nickel-plated pistol 
instead of his favorite pistol, a snub-nosed, self-cocking pistol he kept in his chest pocket. Behan had no answer for Fitch. This was a technique used by many 19th-century lawyers, the propositional, or provable, cross-examination. Lawyers often would give a series of factual statements for witnesses to agree or disagree on. Lubit writes, quote, The best propositional questions, however, did their work invisibly, inveigling the witness into denying something that could later be proved beyond doubt, end quote. In an era when there was no extensive preparation before trials, it was a fantastic technique to catch witnesses in a lie. After a few more questions, the defense rested. They didn't need any more information, and that provable would come back to bite Behan at the end of the trial. It's interesting to note that Fitch didn't mention the fact that Wyatt Earp had sold Behan's girlfriend, Josephine Marcus, from him a few months earlier. Historians have offered different opinions as to why, but at the end of the day it is likely Fitch didn't bring it up in order not to ruffle the judge who might throw it out, or Wyatt, his client for that matter, who might not be very happy with bringing his lover into the court. Although the cross-examination was strong, public opinion swung against the Earps after Behan's testimony. One account stated, quote, Public feeling, which at first was for the Earps and Holiday, seemed to have taken a turn, and now nearly all the people of Tombstone condemn the murderers, end quote. The Arizona Weekly Star reported the killings as, quote, dastardly and inexcusable, but hoping that the absence of malice and premeditation upon the part of the slayers may at least be established, end quote. The prosecution had done a sufficient job, and that's all they needed to do to move to trial. Even if Judge Spicer wasn't content with the charge of murder, they could at least prove that the Earps and Holiday had, quote, acted without due cause or circumspection, end quote, and lower the charge to manslaughter. But that evening, Will McLaurie rode into town and joined the prosecution. His presence changed the entire dynamic of the trial. You see, Will was a lawyer in Texas, and when he heard of his brother's deaths, he set out for Arizona to see that they were found guilty of murder. He believed that the prosecution thus far had not pursued charges aggressively enough. He even wrote, quote, I think we can hang them, end quote. The next day, Martha King repeated her testimony from the coroner's inquest, stating that she had heard one of the Earp brothers state as he was passing by the butcher shop, quote, let them have it. And Doc Holliday replied, all right. This was the first evidence of premeditated murder, and Martha was a neutral witness. Another neutral witness, James Kehoe, testified that he saw the shootout from the door of his shop, and that the Earps had fired as many as four shots before Frank McLaurie drew his pistol. On Monday, November 7th, Wesley Fuller, a local gambler, and a friend of the Cowboys, we should note, testified he saw the Earps fire first, and that neither Frank nor Billy pulled out their pistols until both had already been hit. Another witness, Andrew Meehan, backed up the claim that Tom was not armed when he was killed. At this point, Will McClory pressed for a motion to revoke Doc and Wyatt's bail. Judge Spicer granted the motion, and Doc and Wyatt were jailed for the rest of the duration of the trial when not in court. It suggests that, at least at this point, Spicer was inclined to the prosecution's case. The next day, Billy Claiborne, one of the friends who had been with the Clantons in McLaurie's all the way up until the firing began, testified that the Earps already had their guns out when they rounded the corner, suggesting the Earps were already prepared for a gunfight. 
He also testified that Doc Holliday and Morgan Earp fired first, so close together that he couldn't say which shot first. Like the other witnesses, he also stated that the Earp party had fired multiple times before Frank or Billy drew their guns. Finally, he testified that the Clantons and McLaurys had gathered and left in order to go home. Again, if the Earps had let the party be, then the situation would have de-escalated itself. On cross-examination, Claiborne proved to be at least somewhat unreliable. He stated that Holliday had drawn his nickel-plated pistol before going down the street, which contradicted every other witness. He also admitted staying at the McLaurys and Clanton's ranches, reputed transfer stations for stolen cattle ran by the cowboys. Not exactly a stellar witness. Even so, at the close of the prosecution's case, it seemed like they were firmly in control. It was clear that the Herbs had pursued a fight aggressively and had fired first. Whether it was premeditated was a little more tenuous, but it was certainly sufficient evidence. So the decision to put Ike Clanton, the only surviving member of the shootout against the Earps, on the stand was a momentous mistake. Wednesday, November 9th, Ike testified the entire day as to the encounter. He went over it in painful detail, recounting the death of his brother and his own cowardice as he ran from the fight. He also recounted how the entire affair began the night before, including the poker game and his own arrest. However, the prosecution failed to ask Ike, quote, to explain just why the Earps were so keen to murder him, an omission so glaring that it had to be intentional. End quote. Ike claimed he never threatened the Earps or Doc Holliday. But, intentional or not, it left a gap for the defense to exploit and to paint Ike as the primary precipitator of the fight. When cross-examination began, they immediately attacked his claim that he never made any threats. And that was extremely clear from the get-go. In the last episode, we related in detail how Ike drunkenly cursed and threatened the Earps to anyone who would listen to him for the whole night and into the morning, Winchester in hand. Now, whether this was actually threats or honestly just, like, pathetic drunkenness is remains to be seen. But the cross-examination also questioned him on his connection with Wyatt Earp and how he had agreed to rat out the cowboy robbers of the Benchin stagecoach. The defense's theory was that Ike was afraid that he might be discovered as an informer rather than Doc and Morgan's insults they traded with him the night before the shootout. Ike stated that Wyatt had actually offered him $6,000 for a triple murder to kill the cowboys, specifically because the Earps had been in on the robbery themselves and wanted to keep the loot. Even Fitch was confused. This had never been mentioned. Fitch pressed farther. The tale spun out of control. Quote, As it turned out, Ike explained that the three Earp brothers and Doc Holliday had all taken him into their confidence. In addition to Wyatt's admission, Doc Holliday had actually confessed to killing Bud Philpot, shooting him through the heart. Morgan Earp had urged Ike to take the deal, affirming that he had piped off $1,400 to Doc Holliday, meaning given it to him. And Virgil admitted that he helped Leonard, Head, and Crane escape, intentionally leading Behan's posse off their trail. As the hero of his own story, Ike, of course, would never cooperate in a betrayal. He told Wyatt, quote, I was not going to have anything to do with help to capture Bill, Leonard, Crane, and Harry Head, end quote. Then Ike realized that he had made a mistake, verifying Wyatt's version of the story rather than his own. 
he quickly corrected himself, substituting kill for capture. End quote. You just had to go and screw it all up, didn't you, Ike? You always had to be the hero. You couldn't just leave the case well alone because you ran from the firefight. You couldn't just admit that, yes, you'd been drinking and cursing the Earps the night before, but it was because of Doc and Morgan setting you off. And besides, that didn't warrant officers of the law to track you down after you'd been arrested and paid your fine and beaten your friend, no less. Pull their guns on his brother and friends, two of who were unarmed, and fire unprovoked. Nope, you had to go big or go home with one of the worst lies that you could put on the stand. Whatever goodwill Judge Spicer must have had for the prosecution evaporated as it became clear that Ike Clanton was perjuring himself. And, saving the best for last, Fitch asked, quote, Did you relate these conversations to any of the counsel for the prosecution, or any person, before coming upon the stand this afternoon? I did not communicate this to my counsel, until after I was put on the stand. Yes, I did relate it prior to this afternoon. End quote. And just like that, the case turned. What that meant was that not only had Ike withheld this testimony all throughout the coroner's inquest until just now, and very likely perjured testimony, but he also admitted he'd coordinated it with the prosecution at some recess between when he was first put on the stand and now, meaning they'd allowed the testimony to go forward. All of a sudden, it wasn't just Ike who was suspect, it was the entire prosecution's case. We know from later letters that it was Will McClory who had allowed the testimony to go forward. He certainly believed whatever bowl that Ike had fed him. He likely urged it, too. There had been two recesses between his direct examination by the prosecution and the defense's cross-examination. Sometime in those recesses, Will had urged Ike to broaden his testimony. Of course, because Ike hadn't given a full testimony of this supposed deal with the Earps at either the coroner's inquest or under direct examination, it was extremely suspect. Then, considering the far-fetched claims themselves, it was apparent to most everybody that Ike had perjured himself and had also tied the prosecution's entire case to his own credibility. Lubit offers his own analysis on Will. Quote, McLory was as zealous as an advocate can be, but his single-minded aggression clouded his judgment, which was already thoroughly impaired by grief and anger. Hating the Earps as he did, McLory was ready to believe them capable of anything. The more villainous he could make them appear, the more virtuous were his slain brothers. Of course, he accepted Ike's story, as most men would in his situation. But because he lacked even a glimmer of dispassion, Will McLory would have been unable to accept, or even understand, the likelihood that nearly everyone else would regard Ike as a flagrant liar. End quote. And later, he sums up the entire case as the prosecution rests. Quote, now the central question, if not the only one, was whether the Earps were brutal assassins, not merely hot-tempered lawmen. End quote. Talk about a flip in the case. Four more witnesses testified to Tom McClory's treatment outside of the courtroom where Wyatt walloped him across the face and that he was unarmed, but it didn't matter. The defense knew exactly where to attack the case now. Ike's testimony rested on claims that could be countered by only those he had accused, the Earps and Doc Holliday. 
Of course, that could be dangerous, as it would invite cross-examination, which Will McClory was chomping at the bit for. He couldn't have been angrier than when Wyatt Earp was announced to the stand, and immediately, Fitch announced that Wyatt would read from a narrative statement and would not face cross-examination. The protest immediately started, but Fitch was right. In a preliminary hearing, a defendant could make a narrative statement without cross-examination. Judge Spicer overruled the prosecution, and Wyatt began his testimony. It's a narrative arc that follows roughly that which we described in the last episode, starting with Wyatt's first encounter with the Cowboys the year before, when trying to discover the six government mules that had been stolen from Camp Brucker. It was clearly tailored with Fitch to make sure that it accounted for every interaction Wyatt had ever had with the McLaurys and Clantons. Wyatt claimed that his beating of Tom McClory outside of the courthouse was because he was, quote, in a belligerent mood and carrying a pistol in plain sight, quote, something none of the other witnesses mentioned and they all contradicted. He also mentioned that he saw Billy and Frank draw their pistols first and that Billy shot the first shot, followed by himself, Wyatt. He also testified that he only shot at men he believed to be armed, which meant not Tom. He explained his own rivalry with Johnny Behan and submitted two sworn statements from citizens in Dodge City in Wichita to his own credibility as a man of integrity. It was a stellar testimony and one that the defense couldn't cross-examine. Had Spicer ruled against the use of a pre-written testimony, it may have been much more sour for Wyatt, who would have had to stand up to questioning, and some of his more conspicuous claims that we just laid out above, specifically who fired first, that Tom McClory was armed, would have been suspect, but as it was, it couldn't have gone any better for the defense. While the defense did call additional witnesses to corroborate the sequence of events that occurred before the shootout, that was the moment the case was decided. Simply put, the prosecution got outlawed. Virgil Earp was also called to the stand and testified that Wyatt was correct, that Frank and Billy had drawn their guns before they had fired. The prosecution never followed up with any provables the way Tom had done, which could have set up Virgil as exaggerating or lying about that incident. But again, it really didn't matter. Ike Clanton had fumbled the ball, Tom Fitch, with Wyatt and Virgil's testimony, had picked it up and ran with it. Other witnesses also tried to credibly claim that Tom McClory was armed, but all of this was disproved by the coroner's inquest that found no weapons on the body, plus witnesses before and after who claimed that Tom was never armed. Another witness, Addie Borland, provided such confusing testimony that Judge Spicer later visited her and asked her to give a more complete account. In her testimony, she testified two things that no one else ever did that none of the cowboys had held up their hands to surrender, and that Doc Holliday had shoved his shotgun into the gut of one of the cowboys before backing up and firing. Historians haven't been able to make out exactly what all this was, but likely it was due to her frantically looking between the parties and confusing the sequence of events and persons. For example, Morgan Earp had shoved his pistol into Billy Clanton's gut during the firefight and shot him point-blank. When the prosecution was given the chance to call witnesses at rebuttal, they could have called any number to refute Wyatt and Virgil's testimony, or to contradict witnesses that claimed Ike's drunkenness outbursts that night before were threatening rather than pathetic. None of that happened. Instead, they only called one witness to refute the claim that Tom McClory was armed, as shown the weakest claim that the prosecution made. But both of them rested. On November 30th, Judge Spicer gave his decision. Spicer claimed there was not sufficient evidence for trial.
This was explosive. Let's consider the reality of this situation. If this was a full trial, no question the Earps and Holiday would have been acquitted because of Ike Clanton's blundering and the outlawing by Tom Fitch. But it wasn't. All that was needed to be proven was that there was sufficient evidence to go to trial. Judge Speicher was saying, there wasn't even that. It's still one of the most controversial decisions in the United States court proceedings for a preliminary hearing. Spicer claimed he would weigh the evidence himself, which is typically what the jury is supposed to do. He adopted a rule that governed grand juries to, quote, warrant a conviction by the grand jury, end quote. He was, at this point, in his own words, now the jury. He dismissed much of the evidence on both sides, especially what he called collateral matters, such as Tom McClory's beating by Wyatt Earp, or whether Tom had ever been armed. He stated that Virgil Earp should have taken extra measures to avoid a showdown, claiming that he had committed, quote, an injudicious and censurable act, end quote, in bringing a posse into a needless provocation. But he excused it as not criminal in, quote, the existence of a law-defying element in our midst, end quote, meaning the Cowboys. You see, the defense had rested most of their case on two things. One, Wyatt and Virgil's testimony, and two, subsequent testimony by witnesses that made clear that there was a threat in this cowboy menace. Now, not necessarily tying it to the Clantons or McLaurys. And that had been what Spicer had seized on. He ruled heavily against Behan and Clanton's testimony, and made clear that the testimony had not only tainted the trial, but every other witness who had been called in by the prosecution, even the clearly neutral ones who were unconnected to them and were bystanders. He also claimed medical forensics proved that Billy and Tom hadn't thrown up their hands because of where their wounds were. Now, this was a clear mistake, as they weren't supported in any way by medical testimony. And as an aside, Spicer wrote an article on phrenology, quote, claiming that he could determine criminal character from the shape of a man's skull, end quote. So I really wouldn't trust his professional opinion on forensics. But it didn't matter. The Earps and Doc Holliday were free to go. This is one of those trials that is fascinating, because it's so clear in hindsight what went wrong and what went right. Judge Spicer's conclusions are clearly one place where it went wrong. He had overreached his judicial authority. He even understood that at the time and tried to explain himself, but court historians have not been kind to his judicial activism since. So, what really went down at the OK Corral? Because honestly, that's what a court is supposed to figure out. So say all you want about the jury deciding the truth of the matter. There was no damn jury in this case, and no one believes that the jury is always right. See O.J. Simpson, Rodney King, Central Park Five, etc., I mean, in 2007, Northwestern University studied 271 cases and found that juries gave wrong verdicts in one out of every eight cases, as later evidence reversed verdicts. And just to be clear, I think if this did go to a full murder trial, there is a good chance that they still would have been acquitted, because the outlawing piece is such a big deal. Ike Clanton's testimony was awful, and honestly, Fitch just was the better lawyer. At the end of the day, that's really what matters in a court trial. How you present the evidence, not necessarily what the evidence is. But that doesn't mean that the Earps and Holiday were therefore in the right. There have been dozens of analyses of the shooting, especially from pro-Earp candidates who want to prove that 
the Earps were truly okay, that Billy and Frank had drawn their guns, that no one was surrendering. But Wyatt couldn't have seen Billy and Frank draw their guns first, draw his own gun from the pocket of his leather overcoat like he stated, and fired before them. It would have taken several seconds to wrestle it from the pocket. Lubit points out that Colt revolvers are three pounds fully loaded, and it's clear from the testimony that the Earps and Holiday already had their arms out before the confrontation began. So Wyatt was clearly lying, as was Virgil. Now they may have had their guns out, and Frank made a move that startled them to fire first, but it's unclear what that move was. Was it for his gun? Maybe. But Arizona law, at the time, stated that a killing was only justified under a castle doctrine if the evidence was, quote, sufficient to excite the fears of a reasonable person, and the party killing must have acted under the influence of those fears and not in a spirit of revenge, end quote. That last part is key, because I don't think you can prove that this wasn't in a spirit of revenge. It's clear that the build-up to this moment was a long time coming, with a brewing feud for over a year. Wyatt's actions in beating Tom make it clear he was hot-headed, and their words of premeditation were never definitively proven to not have occurred, and obviously a lack of evidence doesn't necessarily mean that they did it, but with no counterclaims given, that evidence would rest on itself. And then there's the case that Tom was clearly unarmed and surrendering based off of credible witness testimony, and that he was shot down only after the firing began, and he went for his horse. He may have been going for his rifle, but who's not to say that at this point, he was employing the castle doctrine himself? After all, he was suddenly being shot at after trying to de-escalate himself by surrendering. And again, Virgil and company had sought out the McLaurys and Clantons after they left the ranch, in a highly aggressive move which escalated the situation, something even Judge Spicer admitted was poor conduct. I don't know if this was premeditated murder, but had the prosecution pursued a case of manslaughter, this would have been open and shut. The OK Corral shooting reminds me of a situation I read about all the time in the news today, one I'm sure you hear about all the time too. Namely, the situation of a law enforcement engaging in profiling a person, escalating the situation, shooting first, then claiming that they feared for their lives. Now, some of you might balk at me equivocating the two, and I totally get that. Police shootings are a hotbed of controversy today. But personally, I'm in favor of severe restrictions on militarizing law enforcement, more de-escalation training, and greater pursuit of officers who flagrantly shoot unarmed citizens than claim that they fear for their lives. I certainly stand with the police, but I also do want to see some reform done. It's basically the same claim that the Earps and Holidays made back in 1881. But... Here's the thing. There was certainly trouble brewing before the Earps made their way down to Fremont Street. That is clear from our last episode. But instead of de-escalation, instead of putting away their firearms and working with Behan to disarm the cowboys, Virgil rounded up a posse, drew their arms, and went looking for trouble. They pursued the cowboys, and when some were surrendering, none had drawn their weapons yet, they shot and killed them. In my book, that's not a shootout. That's hot-headed law enforcement looking for an excuse to blaze away. Doesn't matter if the cowboys had bad blood with the Earps. It doesn't matter that there were suspicions that they are criminals. No. We shouldn't kill someone based on suspicion, and certainly not based off of our own temperament. Virgil, Wyatt, Morgan, and Doc had all drawn their personal line 
in the sand. One that did not fit with the criminal statutes of Arizona. One that Tom and Billy and Ike and Frank didn't know was there. When they left the OK Corral, they had crossed it, and they paid the price. High Crimes and History is produced, written, and edited by Trevor and Katie Rhodes. Music by Nick Wright. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have recommendations for show topics or comments about the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or find us at our website at highcrimesandhistory.com. 